if you got your Bible, why don't you turn, and I'm, it'll be on the screen as well, why don't you turn to the book of Hebrews, and uh, I've been threatening this, I don't know that threatening is the right word, but I've been threatening to dive into Hebrews and, and really get into it over the last month or so, and uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 1. Now, as we're, as we're turning there, to, today I'm going to be a little bit, I'm going to teach, and, and so I want you to grab hold of it. Um, if I was to ask you, what's your favorite book of the Bible? We would hear a myriad of different things. We would hear the Psalms. We would hear, uh, you know, the Gospels. We would hear, oh, it's the book of Acts. Uh, some might even get, get into Romans. Romans happens to be my favorite book of all in the Bible. It's one that I, I'm pretty confident I know frontwards and backwards. Uh, Romans explains our salvation and what it takes for us to be saved better than I think any other book of the Bible. But... Uh, I don't really usually hear people say, oh, my favorite book is Revelation. That's you. Okay, we got, we got a couple of them here, and I appreciate it. I'm glad because I like it. And, and hopefully maybe some of you raised your hand because of a few years ago, we went through the book of Revelation, and we, we took some time to, to search out to realize that, that's, that, first off, that book is not as scary as most people make it out to be. And, and to be there's some really incredible truths that are there. Of course, the Bible says there's not one idle word in all of all of the scripture. That that we need every verse. We can't just pick and choose. But most people are not going to say Hebrews is is where I go for my reading of the Bible. Uh, Hebrews has an unfair uh, assumption that it's difficult, that it's it's hard. Um, there's, there's even some, some admonitions and some exhortations. Some would say there's even warning in the book of Hebrews that people don't always like. And what I want to do is I want to take it because uh, in reality, Hebrews, and, and it's unfair to, to try to take a great book of the Bible and, and smush it down to one sentence. But the book of Hebrews is all about that, that Jesus is greater. And so that's what I want to do tonight. I want to, I want to teach on the book of Hebrews. I'm, I'm only, in fact, we're only going to read three verses. I'll mention other verses. We're only going to read three verses. And I want to take the, the entire time that I'm going to teach for the next little bit, 30 minutes or so, uh, and, and we're, going to, we're going to just talk about the introduction, why Hebrews is so important in our lives. And then uh, next Wednesday or whenever we can get back, We'll jump in and we'll begin to, to break it down. But uh, if you have your Bibles, let's begin to look. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, Upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had him by himself, I love that phrase, by himself, needed no help. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me just give you Buford's take on this. This is, you know, you've got the New Living Translation, you've got the New King James Version Translation, you've got the Message, you've got the English Standard Version Bible. We just read out of the King James Version. Here's Buford's Version. It says, God in different times, in different ways, spoke unto those people of old. 
He spoke to them by the prophets. But now in these last days, he speaks to us by his son. The son that he had appointed heir of all things by whom he made the worlds. Who is the brightness of his glory looked like it. The express image of his person. Think of a stamp. Think of, of something that's just a perfect, perfect, uh, uh, you, you, when you see it, you see it. And when he by himself, when Jesus Christ, with no help needed, had purged our sins, taking care of them, he sat down in the right hand of majesty on high. There, there's several themes when it comes to the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to uh, as we go through this, I'm going to pull from some commentaries. I'm going to pull from the one of my favorite commentaries, and you've heard me say it many times, is the Bible uh, or the uh, Bible exposition commentary. Uh, the Bible knowledge commentary is another one that I like. But uh, some have said that Hebrews is is showing a a progression, a theme that, that's a progression that if, if you'll follow Hebrews, what it's doing is it's trying to push us to become a mature Christian. It's a, really the same thing that Romans did as well. And uh, of course, we're going to go back in all this. I'm not expecting you to memorize it. There's no test. But number one, it, it's going to talk about, it takes the first six chapters, and it says that Christ was, was better than the prophets. He was better than the angels. He was better than Moses. He was better than Aaron. And then it's going to say in, in the second part, in chapter 7 through 10, that, that Christ is a superior priesthood. We're going to show that we don't need the Old Testament uh, killing of, of sheep and lambs and going and putting the blood on the altar, all of that. That it's Number one, it's a superior order. It's a superior covenant. There's a superior sanctuary and there's a superior sacrifice. And then we, we get into verses or chapters 11 through 13 and, and we've talked about you know, the better person, the superior person of Christ, the superior priesthood of Christ. And now we get to a superior principle. And that is of faith. But I want to I take some time. I, I was said, and this is, I, I assume it's true. If you read on the internet, it has to be, right? But, you know, a man from England, uh, he went to his doctor to have his hearing checked. And the doctor removed the hearing aid out of the guy's ear, and instantly the guy heard better. Kind of confused the doctor a little bit until they realized he had been wearing the device in the wrong ear for 20 years. Um, you know, there's a difference, and, and any of you parents or, or, or any of you that have any type of job like a school teacher, you would understand this completely. There is a vast difference between listening and hearing. Uh, Jesus said it this way, and he said it often, He that hath an ear, let him hear. What it means is that it's more than just what you hear. How many of you have heard the phrase, in one ear? Out the other. How many of you have ever looked at your children and told them to do something and you know good and well they heard you, but they were not listening to you? It was just like, just it was gone. And uh, I, I've seen that. My wife usually will tell me, Brandon, look at me. Because she knows I have a tendency to hear, just not pay attention. It's more than just hearing the word of God. It's more than just hearing a sermon. It's more than just hearing... Uh, you know, a lecture. There's also, uh, not only is it the physical ears, but it's a receptive heart. In Hebrews chapter 3, later on, we'll, we'll probably read it in a, in a future sermon. But there's a verse, Hebrews 3, 7, and 8. It says, today, 
If you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Meaning, hear, receive it, and do something. And, and there's so many people, and, and to be honest, I, I can be one of those. I'm not going to jump into the book of Hebrews for my light reading. And, and I, I've talked to people, just like I said with the book of Revelation, they avoid it. But in doing so, you're avoiding all of the practical things that the book of Hebrews says in there. And so, the best way that I want to do this today, before we really, I mean, I know we read three verses, but before we read anything else and before we go in depth, I want to tell you that there's five characteristics of the book of Hebrews. There's five things that the book of Hebrews accomplishes in the life of believers. So the first one is that the book of Hebrews is a, is a, a book of evaluation. In fact, if you were to look, in the, especially in like the King James Version, there is a word that's used 13 times throughout those chapters, and it is the word better. It's better. And, and that, that the writer, and to be honest, I, I'm not going to get caught up in who wrote Hebrews. The Bible doesn't tell us who wrote Hebrews. Most scholars will tell you that Paul wrote Hebrews because of the scholarly aspect of it. But there's a lot that say Timothy wrote Hebrews. I don't know who wrote it. But the writer wanted to do so so that they could show that Jesus Christ and the salvation that Jesus Christ brought from the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is better than anything else. Now listen carefully. The, the, the Jewish um, religion, if I can use that word, it, it, it comes from the law that was given on Mount Sinai to Moses. It came from God. God told them, you, you've got to do this. Build the tabernacle this way. Build the temple this way. You've got to dress the priest this way. You've got to light this candle. And you've got to kill the, the calf. You've got to kill the lamb just like this. It was very ritualistic. There were traditions. And all of that came through the word of God on the top of Mount Sinai. But God never intended for that to be the end result. And so even that, the, what, what Jesus Christ brings with the gospel is better than, and, and, and understand how I say this, it's better than even the Hebrew system of religion. Later on, we'll get into it, not today, but later on, we'll find that, that Jesus is better than the angels. There's that word again. That Jesus brings a better hope. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that. That, that, Hebrews, or, or that Jesus Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. And all of this we'll explain as we go through it. And then Hebrews chapter 8 says that it's established better promises. So that, that word better is there. And then another word, again, we're talking about the book of evaluation, what it does. Another word that's repeated is the word perfect. If you were to read it in the original Greek, which I cannot do, but I can study a little bit and, and, and see it and, and hear. But 14 times in the original Greek, the word perfect is used in the book of Hebrews. Now, we understand that there's nobody perfect. If, if you were to leave this church and go to another church because we're not perfect here, if you could find a perfect church, the moment you show up, it's an imperfect church because we're not perfect. We'll never be perfect on earth. However, this word perfect means a perfect standing before God, meaning that I can stand in the presence of God and, and, and not be blown to pieces or thrown out. Of course, sin separates us from God. I'm going to throw the mic today. Uh, sin separates us from God. We know that. 
Because of, of the fallen nature of humanity, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we've got a fallen nature, and so we're imperfect. And because of that, we were separated. That's why God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. Because God said, I don't want imperfect, I can't, I can't exist with imperfect people. Well, then later on, he says, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to help you out a little bit. I will, I will let the blood of an innocent lamb, this goes back to the, to the Deuteronomy uh, and, the, and the, those, those uh, sacrificial teachings. I'll let the blood of an innocent lamb roll your sins back. That way you can stand covered in my presence, but it's really not perfect. It's not complete. This perfection that we could stand before God it, it, it is not, it's not possible by a Levitical priesthood. It's not possible by the law. Now, you know, if you've been here any length of time, you know one of my favorite uh, chapters of the Bible is Romans chapter 7. That's where Paul writes, uh, when I want to do good, I can't. And when I don't want to do good, I mean, I mean, when I don't want to do bad, that's what I do. Anybody ever felt like that? I try very hard to do the right thing, but I'm always slipping to the wrong side. And, and when I say I'm not going to do this, guess what I do? I know y'all are perfect out there. I know that because, you know, I pastor y'all. And I, I mean, y'all are just incredible people. But I can tell you there's been times in my life that especially as a young person and growing up and trying to, to, to skip my, there was times that I'd go to an altar and repent of my sins knowing full well in my mind the next week I'm going to be right back in the same sin. That's what Paul was saying. And that's why I didn't get discouraged because if Paul had that problem, Brandon Paul Buford definitely has that problem. But Paul says, the good that I would, I could not. But one of the things Paul mentions in the book of Romans chapter 7 is that the law, all it does is tells us of our sin. It has no power to make us stop sinning. And I use this illustration a lot. You, you tool down the highway, you're driving, and, and you see that little white rectangular sign with the black uh, thing, and it says, you know, 55 miles an hour. And you look down at your uh, speedometer, and you're going 75 miles an hour. That law just told you you were sinning, okay? The law says if you break the speed limit, you get a fine. Anybody ever been recipients of those fines, uh-huh? But never once has that law ever physically reached out, that sign reached out and grabbed your truck and slowed you down. All it does is tell you you've messed up. And, and, and if, this is where the, the, the Ten Commandments, let's use that as an as a understanding of the law. The law says, thou shalt not lie, Right? You can read that all day long, Brother Harvey, thou shalt not lie. And every time that, that you would, God forbid, tell a lie, that law screams at you and says, uh-huh, I told you, thou shalt not lie. But the law doesn't have the power to make us stop lying. And, and, and so, so uh, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews begins to say that, that, that not only is there a better thing, a better covenant, but there is a way that you and I can stand perfect before the Lord. The law, we can't stay, stay, stand perfect before the Lord. The sacrifices of animals cannot achieve your ability to stand before the Lord perfect. But there was one. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. And I, you know, it's, it's hard not to preach Hebrews when you're just doing the introduction. So allow me, as we go through this, I'll pull some of these verses and later on we'll see them in their whole you know how they, how they lay out. But Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14 says that Christ 
gave himself an offering. He gave himself as one offering. And by this, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. What the law, you had to do yearly, daily. The law said that every year on the day of of atonement, there had to be a lamb slain. What the law said, every time you told a lie, there had to be a pretty little lamb that died. What What the Levitical law said, every time you did something wrong, something had to die, blood had to be spilled. Jesus comes along, God manifests in the flesh. We'll get there in a minute. But Jesus comes along, He he's like you and I, yet he doesn't sin. He walks through his entire life up to 33 and a half years old and never sins. And he goes to the cross and he willingly puts himself on the cross and the blood that was shed on the cross is enough that once it washes away the sin, ain't nothing going to drag it back up. It was a perfect thing. The writer of Hebrews is contrasting these two things, law and grace. Now, you've been around me long enough to know that grace is not free and that grace is not just you can do whatever you want to do and who cares, but grace has covered the sin. What the law said, you're guilty. What the law said, you're destined to die. What's the Bible say? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible also says that, that, that um, you know, the wages of sin is death, but God came down. He wanted to make it very clear, the writer of Hebrews, he wanted to make it very clear that the things of the Old Testament, while they are from the Lord and while they are absolutely necessary for that moment, but what he wanted to make sure as we go through the the book of Hebrews, he wanted to make sure that the Jewish religious system was a temporary thing. And that in the end, it was going to lead us to eternal better things in Jesus Christ. That word perfect. So the first word is better, the second word is perfect, but there's another word, eternal. It's very important to all that we read in the book of Hebrews. First off, Hebrews chapter 5 says that Christ is the author of eternal Salvation. Hebrews chapter 9 says through his death he obtained eternal redemption. And he shares with his believers, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15, the promise of eternal inheritance. Hebrews 1.8 says his throne is forever. That means eternal. Uh, several times it says he is a priest forever. That's eternal. And then of course you have that incredible anthem statement of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 Jesus Christ the same yesterday today and forever with him there's no shadow of turning and so let me let me kind of give you a thesis statement if you want to know what Hebrews is all about and I'm pulling this thesis statement from one of the commentaries I read says it very simply if you combine those three words you discover that Jesus Christ and the life he gives you and I here it is it's better because the blessings are eternal and they give us perfect standing before God. That's what the book is. So why in all of this would the writer of Hebrews ask the readers, ask you and I to evaluate our faith? It's because at that moment they were going through some difficult times. They might have been tempted to go back to the Jewish faith. They might have been tempted to go back to the priests and that system. But he said, don't do that. See, real quick, the key to the audience is he was talking to second generation believers. 
Peter was a first generation believer. Peter walked with Jesus. Peter talked with Jesus. The disciples walked with Jesus and talked to them. But then later on, book of Acts chapter 2, there were people that began to receive the Holy Ghost, people that began to be saved, baptized in Jesus' name, that did not really walk with Jesus. And so now they're having to live out their faith without having a, a personal living relationship with Jesus when he was there on walking and ministering for three and a half years. They were true believers. They were not just professing it. And they had been persecuted because of their faith. But, but they're also being seduced. There, there's voices, there's preachers, there's teachers that are coming in trying to pull them away from that perfect way of Jesus Christ. And so the, the tragic thing is, is that as a believer, there's only two ways you can go. You can go forward or you can go backward. With Jesus, there really is no such thing as standing still. Uh, you, you, you can get Hebrews chapter 5. We'll talk about it. That, that some of them had even, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 10, some of them had even stopped going to church. They had forsaken the assembling themselves together. They're not making any, any spiritual progress. And so one thing that Hebrews is going to do in your life is it's going it's to cause you to evaluate yourself and you're going to have to ask yourself, am I going forward into the presence of God or am I going backwards? Now, we would use the term backsliding, which simply means to go backwards. In fact, the writer would ask them later, and then we'll get it, how can you go back to your former religion? How can you go back? But the book of Hebrews takes its time to exalt the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And when you realize everything you have in Jesus Christ, you'll have no desire to go anywhere but into his, his, his presence. So it's a book of, of evaluation. The second thing that the book of Hebrews is, is it's a book of exhortation. Uh, the, the, the word exhortation means encouragement. Another place it's translated as a comfort. Another place, consolation. And so the writer of Hebrews did not intend it to scare anybody. He didn't even intend it to, to get on anybody's toes necessarily. He intended it to comfort those, to encourage those. But in doing so, and we're, we're not going to get to them today, but in doing so, we're going to find five passages of warning that, that sprinkled through the book of Hebrews. The writer kind of stops and he, and he gives five warnings, five exhortations, five things that says, hey, where are you in this? Kind of a wake-up call, if you will. Again, to see if you're going forward or backwards. The writer of Hebrews, and we read it, it, it opens with this important declaration. God has spoken to us through Jesus Christ. Near the close of the book of Hebrews, we're going to find these words. And, and, and they'll be in different ways depending on what version you read. But see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. In other words, it opens up, God is speaking to you. And by the time you get done, the question is going to be asked, what are you going to do about it? Here's the word of God. What are you going to do? And so um, we go a little bit further. Now, those five passages, I found five words that you can use uh, for each of those warning, those five warning passages. And I want you to listen to it because when we get to there, I want you to go back. I want you to remember what I'm fixing to tell you. Because, um, you know, it's going to take us 
maybe a, a month or two to get through the book of Hebrews. And so I, I, when we hit one of those warning passages, one of those exhortations, I want you to be able to remember where it is. Because in everything we do, you can see trends. How many of you work in any type of, of, of business or anything like that where you can see trends? You know, you, whether it's the stock market or whether it's, it's, it's a, uh, you know, sales trends, you know, you can, um, um, depending on what you do, you can find that if you work in sales, car dealers will tell you this. Come tax season, car sales go up. Once everybody spent their taxes, car sales go down. Come graduation time, there's a bump in car sales because people buy their graduates' cars and they go down. And so you have that. And so you have to understand these trends. Nobody ever, 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 ever wakes up one day and says, I hate God. Nobody's not going to do that. There's something that happened before you get to the place where you say, I hate God. I'm done. I'm going away. And so the writer knows this. And so let me tell you these five places. Um, the, the first... Uh, uh, exhortation or warning or admonition, if you will. We're going to find when we get to it in the second chapter, and it's, it's going to talk about those that drift from the Word of God. Okay? Then in chapter 3, you're going to find those that doubt the Word of God. Watch this trend. First, you drift away. It's not that important. Then you start doubting the Word of God. Is it really true? Then, in, in the fifth chapter, you're going to get dullness to the Word of God. It just doesn't speak as sharply to me anymore. And then, you get to the really bad part, chapter 10, we get to where you despise the Word of God. And then, ultimately, the, the, the worst you can get in chapter 12 is you defy the Word of God. Now, if, if this was all I talked about today, uh, it, would be, it would be absolutely okay with me. Because those five phrases are so key to our lives. And so I want to tell you to them again. And, and I want you to listen. Uh, there's drifting from the word, doubting the word, dullness to the word, despising the word, and defying the word. Let me, let me break it down to you. If we don't really listen to the word of God, if we don't really hear the word of God, we'll start to drift. Now, I don't know. The best way I can des describe drifting is when I'm on a boat. I have been on boats in the ocean. I've been on boats in rivers. I've been on boats in massive lakes. I've been on boats in tiny creeks and ponds. And it's something where you can think you're sitting still. And then all of a sudden you realize the wind or the current has taken you further than where you thought you were. And so if we don't listen to the word of God, then we will start to drift. When we neglect Coming to church and listening. When we neglect reading our Bible, when we neglect prayer, we drift. As we drift from the word, doubt creeps in. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's Romans chapter 10. And then as we begin to doubt, our hearts begin to get hardened. There's a spiritual sluggish. We're dull to the word. It doesn't move us anymore. I've seen people, they still come to church, but they've drifted and they've, they, they, they've, uh, they've drifted and they've doubted and they can come to church and nothing moves them. The word of God doesn't move them. They're dull. Uh, and then there's a despiteful attitude. 
That's where you start really pushing back at the things of God. And you start finding ways and reasons to, to prove it's wrong. And, and, and you can twist scripture and all of that. And then finally it develops into a defiant attitude where you almost dare God to do something. Now, that's, that's dangerous. But what happens in that progression? You've got a God that keeps talking to you. Through that entire linear progression until the trumpet sounds and we go to either heaven or hell. Until that final moment. It doesn't matter how far you drift or despise or be defiant. There's God. He's talking to you. He's encouraging you. If you don't listen to the encouragement, there's a little chastening. Hebrews chapter 12 tells a lot about the chastening of God. Sometimes he, uh, he's got to put the belt to us a little bit. But he's doing it in love. And he's trying to right the ship get us back in line. Those five exhortations, they're really addressed to people that are born again, not to some old rank sinner that don't care. He's talking to those that have tasted the salvation of God. Because it's kind of hard to drift away from God if you've never come to God. So, so you got to be understand that. Um, and, and then the third thing, we talked about it's a book of evaluation. Where do we stand? How, how is it? It's a book of exhortation. It's also a book of examination. Um, Psalms chapter 20 and verse 7 says some trust in horses and some in chariots but we will, we will remember the name of the Lord our God Psalms chapter uh, 118 and verse 7 says it's better to put trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man it's better to put trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes and so the book of Hebrews is going to ask this question to every believer who are you really trusting? Are you trusting the word of God? Or are you trusting the things of this world that are going to shake and fall away? Because the writer of Hebrews, it was written at a very strategic point of time. Let me, let me pick you back up and take you to the, to the actual historical time of the Bible. At the point that Hebrews was written, the temple was still standing. You could still go and, and sacrifice and you could go there and you could do that. But in just a few years after the writing of Hebrews... Uh, you, you, you find that massive attack on Jerusalem. The, the, there's not even a stone left on top of each other. They level the city of Jerusalem. At that point, the temple is destroyed. The nation of, of the Jewish nation would be forever scattered. Even until today, it's still a scattered nation. It took all the way back. Was it 1947, 1949 that they, they finally re, uh, recognized the Jewish, uh, you know, Israel as the Jewish nation? From that point till then, it's been, it was scattered. Because they had been destroyed. And so the writer of Hebrews, and of course God himself, knew this. And so he was writing, don't put your faith in that temple over there. Because if your faith is in that temple, Herod's temple, I mean it was the Jewish temple, but Herod built it. If you put your faith in that temple over there in a few years, that temple's going to fall down. If you put your faith in, in the Ark of the Covenant, well, it's, it's, who knows where that is at the point. If you put your faith in that, it's going to be gone. The ages are colliding and God, if you will, look at Hebrews chapter 12 when we get there. God is shaking the order of things because God wanted his people to have their feet on the solid foundation of faith in Jesus Christ, not the vain traditions of man. He didn't want them to trust in things that would vanish away. And I want to tell you today that as true as that was then, it's true today. We live in a moment, we live in a time where everything is shaking and everything is changing. 
and I want to make sure that, that I am on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Now, right now, the economy looks pretty good. Everybody's starting to, to refinance houses and the interest rate's low and, and people are starting to build again and you can got money in the bank, but, but just go back 2008 and realize it can fall just like that. You can lose it just like that. The, the system of, of finances and buildings and programs, those are only material things. And, and, and the farther we get to the end of the world, that's shaking. You're going to see just everything begins to fall apart. And you're going to have to get to the place where you discover that your only confidence can be in the Word of God. On Christ the solid rock I stand. When your belief system is shaken, what are you going to do? When your job is lost and when your family crumbles and when you're injured or when, you, when, when you're, you're going through a medical dilemma or when your mind is fractured, whatever it is, is if, if that's what you were firmly planted on, you're going to lose it. But I can go through all of those troubles when I stand on the rock. In fact, let me show you a few things. That word established. Okay, so we're talking about the examination, but, but using that word established, God wants our hearts to be established with grace. Established means to be solidly grounded, to be stand firm on your feet. It's to, it, it, it's to not be shaken, you know, you, you're not going to be moved. It, it, it's a permanent thing. And so, again, another, and I know I've given you kind of several key phrases in Hebrews, but another key phrase is you can be secure in God when everything else around you falls apart. You can be secure. Bible says we have a kingdom which cannot be moved, Hebrews chapter 12. That God's word, Hebrews chapter 2, God's word is steadfast and the hope we have in him is secure. This security is not for someone that has never trusted in God. This security is not for someone that just says, I love God, but their actions don't prove it. This security is those whose lives give evidence of salvation. Christ, and there's this word, he saves to the uttermost. He saves eternally those who have come to God through the faith in Jesus Christ. That faith, the Bible says, he that believeth shall be saved. It goes a little bit further. Another verse, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Another one says, he that is baptized of the water and of the spirit shall be. You know, the, the, they'll get the, inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so you, you have that. So you got to ask yourself, are you, are you standing on the right foundation? It's a book of evaluation, or it's a book of examination, like we just said. It's a book of exhortation. It's a book of evaluation. And the last one, or, or, or the second to last one is, it's a book of of expectation. This book focuses on the things to come. There's a world to come. There's a time when the believers will reign with Christ, that Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, that we share in the promise of eternal inheritance. Or, or just like the patriarchs in Hebrews chapter 11, we're looking for a future city of God. All of those are phrases you're going to find as we get into the book of Hebrews. This is the reason... Why God shakes everything around us because, as, and I think we, we talked about this uh, last Sunday, but, but this world is not my home. I'm a stranger, the Bible says. I'm a pilgrim. I'm passing through. I live here. I'm, I'm, I exist here. But my focus is on my heavenly home. 
Now, again, as I've heard it said, it doesn't mean we become so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Uh, even though we're looking for heaven, even though we're living our life for that eternal salvation and that eternal uh, 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 paradise, you still got to go to work, Brother Miller. You're still going to have to pay your bills. You're going to still have to put gas in your car and you're still going to have to go to the grocery store. You've still got to live on this life. But I'm, my value is in heaven. Let me, let, me, let me do it like this. Go back to the book of, of Genesis and you find two men that illustrate this perfectly. You have Lot and Abraham. So, so Lot and Abraham, they're, they're nomadic people, but God has blessed them and they've got so many sheep and cattle and, and, and all of this, they, they, they just can't exist together anymore. And so they go up to the mountain and Abraham says, Lot, just whatever way you want to go, you choose. I'll let you have first pick. You go that way and I'll go the opposite way. Lot looks out and he sees the well-watered plains of Sodom. And he says, I'm going to go there. There's a big city there. It's great. And I'm sure Abraham said, now be careful. That's not the greatest city. There's a lot of sin that goes on there. There's a lot of things that happen there. But Lot said, no, that's okay. That looks like it'll be an easy life. Lot goes there. Abraham goes to the mountains in those higher uh, 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 places where the grass grows, those higher fields that the, they could graze. Lot was saved. Don't get me wrong. Lot lived for God. But he chose to trust in the things of this world. And, and as one writer that I read wrote, Lot forfeited the permanent because he depended and lived for the immediate. And if you know anything about that, Lot finally finds himself in the middle of that cesspool of sin called Sodom and Gomorrah. And God blasts Sodom and Gomorrah into the ground with hellfire and brimstone. And Lot and his family, they escape. But of course, Lot's wife turns around. She turns into a pillar of salt. And, and then later on, Lot's girls, his, his two daughters, they've lost their ever-loving mind. And they just get into horrible sin and debauchery. And, and so Lot was saved. But he lost a whole lot of things because he was living for the immediate gratification. That. But Abraham, Abraham, he, he depended on the Lord. Abraham, in fact, Hebrews says it best. Abraham obeyed God because he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. Moses, again, forsook the treasures and the pleasures of Egypt because he had respect under the recompense of reward. He said, I don't need to be in Egypt. There's something better out there. Hebrews chapter 11 goes on to say that these people lived in that future tense. They were living for eternity. And so that's the question you and I have to ask. Don't live, don't, 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 don't live for what the world might promise you today. Live for what God promises you in the future. Walk by faith and not by sight. Dr. A.W. Tozer, a great theologian, simply said this. He said, every man must choose his world. What world do you choose? It's a book, Hebrews is a book of evaluation and exhortation, examination and expectation. But the last thing it is, it's a book of exaltation. It exalts the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Those first three verses we read set the stage for everything that's going to come throughout the entire book. That Jesus Christ, in his person, he's superior. This is not just a good man. Jesus Christ was not a prophet. You got Abraham, or you got Elijah and 
Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elisha, those were good prophets, but they were men at the end of the day. In fact, if you read anything in the Bible, you know that the greatest men of God also had failures and, and had, had places where they didn't always measure up. But this is more than just a man called by God. Jesus is the Son of God. What do you mean by that? Oh, it's simple. The description of Jesus could never be applied to any mortal man. The, the Bible says it's the brightness of his glory. It refers to that Shekinah glory of God. You could go to the temple and the tabernacle and see the glory of God. And, and that was in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he was. That expressed image. It means the exact imprint. It's the same word that we get the word character from. Jesus was the representation. It was the visible of the very substance of God, which is why Jesus could say, if you see me, you've seen God. What he was saying was, if you're looking at this, I'm God manifest in the flesh. In fact, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, for in Jesus Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You had an invisible God that for 33 and a half years came down to earth, became man. It's the exaltation of the humanity and the person. But also in his work, Christ was superior of the prophets because he didn't just tell you what was going to happen. He made sure that what was going to happen could. John chapter 1 says it was created by his word. Hebrews says he upholds all things by the same word. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17 says that Jesus is before all things and by him all things hold together. You see, in the Old Testament, you had a bunch of voices, a bunch of prophets, and those are necessary. But in the New Testament, you have Jesus. You have one God. That word, I love the, the just the, that, that understanding. There's only one. You don't have to try to figure it out. I, I, there, there's a lady that, her name is Sister Vonnie Marshall, and you may know her, but uh, she, she came out of the, the Hindu and, and, and that, that religion. And she was a priestess in, in one of the temples that they had. And she, there, there's literally 30-something thousand different gods that the Hindus worship. And, and in her testimony, Vani Marshall, she says, it was so exciting to come and realize I only had to remember one name, Jesus Christ. For the Bible says there is one name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Another place says that at the mention of that name, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we exalt the person of Christ. We exalt the, the, the work of Christ. His ministry. He's not just a priest. But I love this. See, you have to understand. He, he, Jesus is not only the priest, the high priest. Hebrews says we have a high priest that's been touched by the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what we've gone through. And this is where it kind of hurts my head, but hang with me. He's the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. He's the judge that at the end of the day is going gonna, is gonna to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come to heaven or depart from me. I never knew you. You're going to hell. He's the judge. But at the same time, he's your advocate. 
He's the lawyer that stands in your place and pleads the blood and pleads the case for you. That's why he's superior than anything in the Old Testament. And finally, he is the king. When Christ died and the humanity, God never died, understand that. It was the humanity that died. He was fully God and he was fully man. But when the man died, when the heart stopped and the blood quit pouring out on the cross, they laid him in a tomb. Three days later, God raised that humanity back up. But finally you have, and this was Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 that we, that we read. When he finished that work, that work of salvation on Calvary, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the gospel. He sat down. His work was finished. And he sat down, what they say, on the right hand of majesty, meaning the power. He sat knowing, I am the king. A conquering king. He's the creator, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Jesus Christ. And as we gather, and I, I know that if you're like me, and I'm, I recognize the time, and I'm very cognizant of that, and I'm going to let you go. But if you're like me, I want to keep going. Because we've only scratched the surface of what all of this represents. And so as you and I go further into the book of Hebrews, keep in mind that all of the Hebrews is perhaps echoing the prayer of one of the Greeks. You, you see it in John chapter 12 and verse 21. Sir, we would see Jesus. That's what Hebrews is. Hebrews allows you to see Jesus. It allows us to know Him better and to exalt Him more. I wonder if we could stand for a moment. I feel the presence of God. I love it when the Word of God speaks to hearts and minds and you can just kind of feel that touch on your